Avant de commencer, veuillez noter que cet épisode sera bilingue et que Graham Fraser et moi euh, alternerons entre le français et l'anglais lors de notre conversation. Une transcription dans les deux langues officielles sera disponible sur notre site web, donc mcgill.ca misc, M-I-S-C. Bonjour, hello and welcome to Close Up on Canada, the podcast from the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. I'm your host, Daniel Bill. Pour la première saison de notre balado, nous allons parler de la façon dont le Canada fait face à l'avenir à une époque de grande incertitude. Today, we will talk about language policy in Canada and more specifically, the future of the Official Languages Act. Enacted in 1969, this legislation made both English and French the official languages in Canada. It is the legislative keystone of Canada's official bilingualism, and it created the position of Commissioner of Official Languages, whose dual role was uh, described as quote, the protector of the Canadian public and the critic of the federal government in matters respecting the official languages, end of quote. To discuss this ongoing debate about the modernization of the Official Languages Act, we have the pleasure to speak to Graham Fraser, formerly Canada's longest-serving commissioner of official languages, who has been involved in many important debates and discussions concerning the language rights of Canadians. Grant Fraser is currently a senior fellow at the University of Ottawa and a member of the board of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Hello, Graham, and thank you for joining us today. Hello, Daniel. Thank you for asking me. So to start off, let's set the scene of our topic today. Why do we have legislation around official languages in Canada in the first place? Where does it come from? Well, the origin really has to be uh, seen as happening in the early 1960s, 60 years ago. After the election of the Quebec Liberals in 1960, there was a growing sense of language nationalism in Quebec. And in 1962, there were 26 creditist MPs who were elected who deprived the Liberals, first the Conservatives and then the Liberals of a majority government. In contrast with previous deputations, the creditist members were from small town Quebec. They were, with one or two exceptions, relatively uneducated. They were working class and uh, most of them were unilingual francophones. So every day somebody rose in the House of Commons and asked why. Why is it that the orders of the day were in English only? Why is it that the announcements at the station were in English only? Why is it that the guards could not welcome their constituencies in French as well as in, as well as in English? And it went on day after day all through the fall of 1962. And uh, in December 1962, Lester Pearson, who was then the leader of the opposition, made a speech in which he uh, said that if he were elected, he would set up a royal commission. And in the spring, he was, and he set up the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism, which began its hearings in 1963. 
And uh, in 1965, after hearings across the country, they recognized that there was a serious gap in understanding between English speakers and French speakers. And in a memorable line in the introduction, they said that Canada, without fully realizing it, is passing through the greatest crisis in its history. And so uh, in 1967, they came out with the, two years later, the first set of recommendations. And after the election of the Liberals in 1968, many of those recommendations were put in place. There was the introduction of Official Languages Act, the creation of um, the Office of the Commissioner of Official Languages, and the process began of trying to make the federal government capable of responding to Canadian citizens in the official language of their choice. Well, that's a fascinating story, and I'm not sure that many Canadians remember all the events leading to the enactment of that legislation. Can you tell us a bit about how and why uh, you uh, became interested in this topic in the first place, since you have worked in this field for many years? Well, it, it really began when, at my last year of high school, uh, I was invited to a Gilles Vigneault concert at the University of Toronto, and I was totally transfixed. I was fascinated and realized here was a, a rich culture that was right next door that I didn't understand. And um, um, when I was in first year university, um, I was offered the opportunity to uh, apply for um, work in Quebec on an archaeological dig at Fort Lennox, which is some 50 kilometers south of Montreal on Ilo Noir on uh, the Richelieu River. Half the students were, were from English Canada and half were French-speaking Canadians, from most of them from Quebec, mainly from the University of Montréal and, and Laval. It was that experience that really transformed me from someone who spoke Ontario high school French into someone who could actually speak the language. Um, and by the end of the summer, I realized I was a lot more in interested in Quebec than I was in archaeology. And so I looked around for other opportunities to work in, in Quebec. Rather, I could have worked on, on archaeological digs in other parts of the country, but I wanted to go back to, to Quebec. And I got a job and a student project that involved working as an orderly uh, at what was then called L'Hôpital Saint-Jean-de-Dieu, a mental hospital in the east end of Montreal that's now L'Hôpital Hippolyte-la-Fontaine. And I spent two summers as part of this uh, student project um, working as an orderly in a mental hospital. This was through the 1960s, and so it was when all kinds of exciting things were happening. Um, I was standing beside uh, at a in the crowd watching the... The, the limousines go by as General de Gaulle headed for Montreal City Hall, where he made the, uh, the famous Vive le Québec Libre speech. It, to be in Quebec in the summers of uh, uh, 1965, 1966, and 1967, which was the summer of Expo, was a profoundly exciting, stimulating experience. And then years later, I had the chance to go to uh, Montreal as a correspondent for Maclean's in 1976. And I thought that I would be spending that time looking at how Montreal avoided bankruptcy after the Olympics. 
And uh, then Robert Bourassa called an election. Um, I got on the election plane and I got off 10 years later. I spent the next 10 years following the Levesque government and the Bourassa government between 1976 and 1986 and then moved to Ottawa. But I continued to be interested in Quebec politics and would keep going back to cover Quebec elections or to cover refer the, the subsequent referendum. Right. So tell us a bit about your, your experience as uh, an official uh, languages commissioner. In uh, 2005, I wrote a book um, called Sorry, I Don't Speak French, which pulled together all of my experience um, writing about language policy because I'd had the opportunity as a correspondent of watching Bill 101 be debated, um, of following some of the language debates in Ottawa, following the referendum debates. And I uh, wanted to, to pull all that together into a book, which I, I did after. Um, and then Stephen Harper's um, government announced that you would have to apply for these positions. Previously, the hand of God descended on the shoulder of the person who became uh, a, an agent of parliament. Um, and so I applied. And when I got the job, my publisher said it was the first time he'd ever published a 93,000-word job application. It was uh, a huge opportunity for me to to understand close up um, the nature of the challenge, the nature of the problem, um, and, uh, and also to travel across the country and, and talk about uh, language issues, to meet minority language communities from coast to coast to coast. And uh, so I visited every province, most of them several times. I visited all three territories in the north Um, got to know the minority language communities, um, went to every part of Quebec to visit all of the small, struggling minority English language communities that are scattered across the, the province off the island of Montreal. And uh, it was a, a huge privilege. Oui, tout à fait. Bon, parlons maintenant un peu de, de, de la, la loi sur les langues officielles, son, son évolution, mais aussi... Euh... Donc, le débat sur son renouvellement, sur sa modernisation. Quand on parle de, de, donc de, de langues officielles sur le plan législatif, euh, sur le plan des politiques publiques, là, quels sont les principaux défis auxquels euh, nous faisons face actuellement dans le, le contexte de ce débat sur la modernisation de la loi sur les langues officielles? Ben, je pense qu'il y a deux, deux éléments importants. D'abord, de comprendre l'évolution législative de la loi qui a été déposée, la première version, en 69. Euh, il y a eu une série d'événements. C'était euh, le, tout le débat constitutionnel qui a fait en sorte que euh, les droits linguistiques ont été enchassés dans la Constitution. Donc, il fallait amender, transformer la loi en fonction de, des, des changements constitutionnels, le, le, la Charte des droits et libertés. Ce qui a été fait euh, en 88, euh, c'était la première euh, amendement de la loi. Ensuite, euh, en 2005, il y a un autre amendement de ce qu'on appelle la partie 7 de la loi qui a imposé une obligation... Euh, sur toute, euh, toute institution fédérale de prendre des mesures positives pour l'épanouissement des, des communautés euh, de langue officielle en situation minoritaire. Puis, on n'a pas défini ce que ça voulait dire, 
une mesure positive. Et à cette époque-là, euh, j'étais commissaire euh, et je croyais que c'était mieux comme ça de ne pas avoir une définition qui pourrait contraindre et que ce serait bien d'avoir une évolution de la compréhension de cette, cette obligation. Mais euh, après dix ans, euh, je me suis rendu compte qu'il euh, y avait des problèmes substantiels, surtout que euh, un juge face à une cause en Colombie-Britannique euh, a identifié toutes les failles de, cette, de, de cet amendement de la loi et euh, qui, qui a refusé de, de reconnaître les impositions en disant que cette partie de la loi est mal écrite, les obligations ne sont pas comparables aux autres obligations dans la loi. Donc, euh, de toute évidence, euh, il faut euh, revoir la loi. Et ça, c'est euh, un des principes dans la discussion actuelle. Et depuis sa nomination, euh, la ministre Mélanie Joly a voulu avoir une, une, une nouvelle version de la loi. Puis elle a, elle a eu des, des consultations à travers le pays. Il y a eu, je pense, cinq euh, forums publics euh, euh, dans différentes, sur différents aspects de la question linguistique à travers le pays. Puis euh, il y a eu des consultations avec euh, des commissions parlementaires euh, au Sénat, la Chambre des communes. Euh, euh, mon successeur, Raymond Théberge, a écrit, euh, a présenté euh, une proposition d'amendement qui a été très détaillée, très importante. Puis, euh, il y a un mois, six semaines, euh, le gouvernement a déposé, la ministre a déposé, un livre blanc euh, sur la question. Puis, un livre blanc, euh, comme vous savez, c'est un document d'intention du gouvernement. Ce n'est pas un projet de loi, mais, mais ça brasse, ça, ça, ça présente un portrait de la situation. Et euh, dans ce livre blanc, euh, on parle de, de partir de six principes. Euh, reconnaissance, euh, la reconnaissance des dynamiques linguistiques différentes dans les, les provinces et territoires, avec une certaine reconnaissance du dynamique des langues autochtones, puis euh, un désir d'avoir des occasions d'apprentissage de l'autre langue officielle, euh, d'appui pour les situations des, des communautés de langue officielle en situation minoritaire, protection et promotion du français à travers le Canada, y inclus au Québec. Et ça, c'est une innovation. C'est la première fois qu'on euh, fait une déclaration que, à l'effet que le français a besoin d'une aide fédérale au Québec. Puis euh, euh, que le gouvernement du Canada s'établisse euh, comme un exemple vis-à-vis -vis la performance des institutions fédérales et finalement euh, que le, le, la loi devrait être conçue pour l'avenir. Donc, à partir de ces, ces six principes, euh, il y a un livre blanc assez élaboré avec euh, l'importance d'avoir de l'aide, de l'instruction, euh, surtout du français pour les anglophones, 
de l'aide pour le, les écoles d'immersion où euh, il y a toujours plus de parents qui ont d'espace, qui veulent euh, que leurs enfants s'inscrivent dans les classes d'immersion. Euh, et aussi cette question qui a causé une certaine malaise pour des, euh, les, les communautés anglophones au Québec que le problème est le français au Québec aussi, aussi que euh, dans le reste du Canada. Donc, euh, c'est un, euh, une déclaration que le, le gouvernement fédéral n'a jamais fait dans le passé. Dans le passé, il y a toujours eu une approche symétrique qui a été critiqué par certains en disant que la situation de l'anglais euh, au Québec n'est pas comparable à la situation du français dans les autres provinces. Mon seul commentaire à ça, c'est qu'on a tendance à voir le, la situation du français au Québec en regardant les anglophones à Montréal. Bon, à Montréal, il y a 600 000 anglophones. Donc, à 600 000, on peut se protéger pas mal. Euh, on peut appuyer euh, les cinémas, le théâtre, des journaux. Euh, mais il y a 300 000 anglophones dispersés sur le grand territoire du Québec. Et être anglophone euh, à Trois-Rivières, euh, à Sherbrooke, euh, euh, dans le Gaspé, c'est un phénomène tout à fait différent. C'est de plus en plus difficile d'avoir des services disponibles en anglais euh, à l'extérieur de Montréal. C'est compréhensible, c'est naturel, mais... Euh, euh, puis, il y a eu une étude qui a été euh, faite dans le passé qui euh, a démontré qu'il y a un effet de morale, que les, les communautés linguistiques euh, francophones à l'extérieur du Québec ont moins de services que les anglophones, mais ils sont plus optimistes. Tandis que les anglophones ont accès à plus de services, mais ils sont plus pessimistes. Et c'est parce qu'il y a eu un déclin important de, de la communauté. Euh, en 71, il y avait 200 000 étudiants anglophones dans des écoles. Maintenant, il y a, il y a 90, 95 000 anglophones dans les écoles. Donc, c'est un, un déclin important de, de la communauté. Puis, en contraste avec euh, les autres communautés, grâce à, à la loi 101, euh, les, les, les écoles n'ont pas droit à l'expansion. Ils ne peuvent pas avoir accès à l'immigration. Tandis que euh, dans le reste du pays, les communautés francophones peuvent euh, avoir accès euh, aux immigrants francophones. Tout à fait. Point, euh, point très intéressant. Let's talk a bit about the current debate about the liberal proposals on the table right now. What are these proposals and what are the main issues they raise? Because there's no consensus about them. You have different voices that are critical of them. So what's the lay of the land in terms of the ongoing debate about the modernization of the act? Well, one of the, the one of the interesting things that I would say about the modernization of the act is how how little attention it's got. Fifteen years ago, when I wrote a book about language policy, I felt that the government was much more interested in multiculturalism than it was in bilingualism and biculturalism, the phrase used for the title of the uh, the Royal Commission and its reports. Um, 
Now, I think it's obvious that the government is much more interested in indigenous issues, reconciliation with indigenous people than it is um, with with bilingualism, biculturalism. So the really the only response that that came was from um, from Anglophone communities in Quebec who are worried that if they are not treated on the same, which they aren't already. I mean, the the federal government does um, treats uh, the La Fédération des Communautés Francophones et Acadiennes as a national organization, whereas it treats the Quebec Community Groups Network as a provincial organization. So um, uh, the Quebec Anglophones are at a disadvantage just in terms of the level of the bureaucracy that they deal with in Ottawa. Um, and there is, uh, even though uh, there are approximately the same number of uh, Anglophones in Quebec as there are Francophones in the rest of the country. So um, the uh, that move to considering an asymmetrical approach of seeing that French in Quebec is going to be a preoccupation of the federal government um, and uh, really only paying lip service to the challenges of the English community in Quebec is the, the one area in which um, the Quebec Community Groups Network has, has expressed its, its concern. But even though it's not related to the federal uh, legislation, the fact that um, all federal parties basically agreed that Quebec has the constitutional power to amend, introduce a constitutional amendment itself in terms of Bill 96 um, is an indication that there is, uh, there is no political constituency for any political party right now to go to the go to bat for the English community in Quebec. So um, the English community is is significantly underrepresented both in Quebec City and and in Ottawa. Um, the Liberal Party has tended to use safe um, seats in Quebec um, for for the members that would have challenges that they want to elect that have would have challenges getting elected in largely francophone areas. So um, uh, there is a leadership challenge in that to that extent for the uh, the English community in Quebec. On these words, Graham Fraser, I want to thank you for this fascinating conversation. Merci beaucoup et au plaisir de vous reparler. Uh, toujours un plaisir de discuter uh, avec vous. That was Graham Fraser, Senior Fellow at the University of Ottawa, formerly Canada's longest-serving Commissioner of Official Languages. To learn more about the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, our academic programs, and our public event, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash MISC. You can follow us on Twitter at MISCCAN, M-I-S-C-C-A-N. And of course, you can subscribe for more episodes of Close Up on Canada. Thank you to our producer, Blair Elliott, and the staff at MISC, and to you for listening. Merci et à la prochaine.